there's a very real danger that lurks for every one of us. It is subtle and unseen. It can be ravaging us, and no one around us knows it's impacting us. It's even possible that it is ravaging us, and we don't realize it ourselves. The book of Proverbs refers to this as something that causes rot to the bones. This danger can cause us to secretly celebrate when others fail. It causes us to secretly weep when others celebrate. This danger is envy. And this powerful danger can destroy our own hearts. It can undermine any sense of peace within us and destroy relationships that we have with others. And today in our passage, we'll see the destructive power of envy and why we must always be on guard against it. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of 1 Samuel, to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel 18, you'll find it in the Bibles near you on page 241. Page 241. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible, open up a Bible app so you can see the passage right in front of you today as we work through our text. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers, so we'll start in chapter 18. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers, and I'll mention those verse numbers throughout our time together. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room, there's a table, a stack of Bibles, a sign that says free Bibles. Please grab one of those following the service. Take it with you as our gift to you today. We're continuing our series in 1 Samuel that we're calling In Search of a King. And last week we saw that there was a standoff between the Israelite army and the Philistine army. The Philistine army had this one dominant warrior who was taller than anyone else. He was seemingly unbeatable, named Goliath. And so each day he went out approaching the other and calling out just one from the Israelites to come and fight. And they would fight in a representative way. Whoever won, their side would win. But day after day he went out and none of the Israelites would fight him. They were all fearful, unwilling. Until finally this young man, David, decided that he would go and do so. And that he would fight for the glory of God. And also so that it would be seen that the Lord saves, he said, not by sword nor by spear. By the power of God, David accomplished this stunning victory. Goliath and the Philistines were defeated. Our text this morning picks up right after that, chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, his armor, and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. The women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands more can he have but the kingdom? 
And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. And Saul said to David, Here's my elder daughter, Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? From the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michal loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, Let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. For Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delighted in you, and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? The servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. And Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went, along with his men, and killed two hundred of the Philistines. David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and then Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. And the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul so that his name was highly esteemed. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all the servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you, and if I learn anything, I will tell you. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. 
Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. But a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with the spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. And Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. When messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed, and with the pillows of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me thus, and let my enemy go, so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go, why should I kill you? And David fled and escaped. And he came to Samuel at Ramah. And he told him all that Saul had done to him. He and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naoth and Ramah. And Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messenger of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah. He came to the great well that is in Sekhu, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? This morning in this lengthy passage, we see this emphasis. Trust and love the Lord's anointed king instead of opposing him. Trust and love the Lord's anointed king instead of opposing him. And we'll look at the story in three different parts. So first we'll see the Lord's anointed is recognized and loved. Second, we'll see the, the Lord's anointed is envied and successful. And then last, the Lord's anointed is pursued and delivered. So first, the Lord's anointed is recognized and loved in chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. A number of weeks ago, we saw back in chapter 16 that though Saul was the king, Samuel had come and anointed David as the anointed one who was to be king. And so this morning, as I use the term, the anointed one, I'm referring to David, who's not yet officially the king, but God has ordained him to be the anointed one who will be king. And we see that Saul's son, Jonathan, had a deep affection for David. Look down at verse 1. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. We see here, see here, and we'll see going forward in this book, 
a deep, substantial, faithful, enduring friendship. A mutual love between Jonathan and David. I think at first glance, it's easy to think that these two are probably peers the same age. But in fact, with some work, we, we discern that, that it's likely that Jonathan is up to 25 years older than David. Old enough to be his dad. And yet we have this deep kindred spirit within them. A commitment and affection for one another. Now, some have tried to suggest that this was a romantic, homosexual relationship between David and Jonathan. But in fact, there's nothing in the text that would indicate that. Certainly in God's word, same-sex activity was forbidden by God's word. And we see in 1 Samuel that, that God is not at all opposed to listing the sins of his leaders. As we see Saul's sin listed. And in 2 Samuel, we see very dark sins listed of David. So God's word is not, is not afraid to list the failures of his people. There's no mention here of any sort of sinfulness to this relationship. And I think one of the reasons that some might try to suggest this is because of how rare it is in our culture for people to have deep, loving, committed, non-romantic friendships. For, for men with men, women with women, to have these deep abiding relationships are, are sadly rare. It's especially true in our culture, at least among men. And because of this, we often miss out on the, the true gift that comes in the giving of ourselves in friendship. Friend, friendship is a gift of God and a worthwhile investment. I was blessed by a, a deep friendship with a man who was about 20 years older than me. I first met him when he was my college minister. In time, he became a mentor to me. And over the years, we simply became friends, deep, committed friends. It was at his initiation that we moved to New England 24 years ago. And across my life, when I think about key moments, his fingerprints on almost every one of those grateful to God for that friendship across generations. He died a couple of years ago. His name actually, like Jonathan here, his name was Jonathan. We called him John. And I miss him very much to this day. It's worth considering whether we see the value of friendship. In, in our city that's profoundly lonely, yet also Profoundly busy, sometimes even disinterested in pursuing friendship. I mean, the fact is, it does take time and effort to build friendships. It's risky to build friendships. I wonder what it would look like for you to be a good friend. It's easy to say, I want good friends. Other people should be a good friend to me. We can't control those things. But are you a good friend? others. Let me encourage you also not to discount the potential richness and value of friendships outside of your generation. We easily are drawn to people our same age or within a very narrow range, and we think, that's my friendship opportunity. Friends, so often we can be enriched by people younger than us and older than us. We see in verse 3 that Jonathan makes a covenant with David, a deep, lasting commitment and then Jonathan does something very interesting in verse 4. We're told that Jonathan strips himself of his robe that he's wearing, and he gives it to David. 
But he also gives him his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt. This is actually a stunning act for Jonathan was symbolically transferring his role to David. Clothes signify the person, signify the role. Jonathan is the son of the king. He's the crown prince. So by this act, Jonathan is renouncing his role as crown prince and transferring that role to David. Now, Jonathan didn't have the authority to do this officially, and this wasn't done publicly as best we can tell, but this was Jonathan's heart. And if we think about it, this is really an outrageous act. I mean, imagine the news in, in Britain if Prince William just gave up his role to a commoner who was a close friend. It's like, this is my best friend. He will now be the crown prince instead of me. In fact, we think about it, the, the more likely practice would have been to, for Jonathan to see David as a rival. I mean, David's now famous for defeating Goliath. Everywhere he goes, he's winning. And so Jonathan, appropriately, I think, would have felt like, look, if he grows in approval, people are going to want him over me. So the more likely step would have been for Jonathan to scheme, how do I get rid of David, not how do I pass my role on to David. This act of Jonathan was tremendously costly for him. In fact, it will cost him everything. And yet, Jonathan willingly chooses to do this. David doesn't initiate this. David doesn't ask for it. Jonathan does it. Jonathan was recognizing David for who he was. He's the Lord's anointed. He's the next king of Israel. And we're continuing to see Jonathan's godliness. I think Jonathan is often an overlooked character. We think of just godly figures in the scriptures. But as I've been reading 1 Samuel in recent weeks, I've just really been stunned by his character, his boldness, his courage, and his humility. Jonathan was a friend of the Lord's anointed, David. But there was a, a greater anointed one who David prepares the way for, a descendant of David who is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And this anointed one comes to transform enemies like us into friends. The enemies of Jesus mocked him by saying of him, he's a friend of sinners. They saw that his way of undercutting his authority. In fact, that's very much what he was. He was, in fact, a friend of sinners. But he also came to initiate a unique friendship with all who looked to him by faith. For all who are brought into his kingdom. Listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 15. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no one than this than someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I've heard from my father. I have made known to you. So friend, because of Christ, if you're a Christian, you are a friend of the king. And even more than us being a friend to him, friend, do you believe he's a friend to you? He sees himself as a friend to you. Jonathan encountered the anointed one and gladly gave up his kingdom. Either he could have the kingdom 
or David could have the kingdom, but they couldn't both have the same kingdom. So Jonathan gladly gives his up for David's kingdom. And in this world, we all have a kingdom that we rule over. Our own little sovereign reign. It may be smaller or larger depending on our life in this world. But we live holding up, propping up our own kingdom. And as we encounter Jesus, the true king, our kingdoms are at odds. Either it will be my kingdom or his kingdom. Either we will trust in his kingdom or ours. But we can't have both. And so every person, we face the question, what will we do when it's our kingdom or his? Friend, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you would give part of your Sunday to join us here today. And you may not think of these particular categories of your own kingdom, but you do have this life that you're building, that you're managing, coordinating, and to a certain extent, try to guard it from others, maintain it for yourself. Friends, there is a King Jesus who has come. And no matter what your kingdom is like, no matter how, even how good it may be, it still will find itself at odds with his kingdom. For all of us, our kingdoms will ultimately be broken, fallen. Friend, Jesus came to bring you into his kingdom, a kingdom unlike any other, marked by grace and forgiveness, of mercy and love, and his kingdom is truly eternal. And when you're brought into that kingdom by faith in Christ, you're actually made a joint heir with Jesus Christ. A stunning gift for all who are part of his kingdom. So we see that the Lord's anointed is recognized and loved. And friends, this is the one we want to love and trust and not oppose. That brings us to the second. The Lord's anointed is envied and successful. Chapter 18, verses 6 through 30. We're taken back for a moment, to just after David had defeated Goliath. Now, this was a huge moment for Israel, for it looked like Israel was about to fall because no one could defeat Goliath. In fact, no one's even willing to fight Goliath. But then this young man steps in and defeats him. So you can imagine there have been much celebrating across the land. We see a glimpse of that, verse 7. The women were coming out of the cities. They're singing to one another. There's, there's tambourines. They're saying Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Everyone is happy. Except for one, Saul. Look at verse 8. He was very angry and said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands. To me, they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So the women are thrilled. Deliverance has come. The nation has been saved. That's all they're doing. They're celebrating. We're told in text they're singing to each other as Saul go by. They're not trying to sing at Saul. They're not trying to poke Saul. They're not trying to elevate David above. They're simply singing, but Saul takes it that way. If you think about it, it's really shallow thinking on the part of Saul. Because David's victory over Goliath was a victory for Israel, and therefore a victory for their king. However many David kills, he's under Saul, so his victories only help Saul. And of course, Saul himself had a chance. He could have fought Goliath. He was there. He was the biggest guy among all the Israelites. But he was unwilling to fight. But clearly, that's not how Saul sees it. Saul was jealous, envious of David. 
when I begin to see the subtle but devastating power of envy. While all the nation celebrated the victory, envy was consuming Paul, robbing him of his joy. And for just as envy was a great danger for Saul, it is a tremendous but subtle danger for every one of us. Author Jerry Bridges says it this way, envy is the painful and oftentimes resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by someone else. But we don't just envy people in general. Usually there are two conditions that tempt us to envy. First, we tend to envy those with whom we most closely identify. And second, we tend to envy them in areas that we value the most. For instance, I don't play tennis, so I don't envy Rafael Nadal's backhand. It would never cross my mind to envy that. But I do play pickleball. And there's this 75-year-old man named Jasper. And he's got a great backhand. And at times I do find myself envying his backhand when I come to pickleball. On a more serious level, I don't ever envy software developers. I don't know what you do. I'm glad you do it, I guess, but I have no clue. So I would never wake up and think, today I envy those software developers. But you know who I do sometimes envy? Other pastors. That's where I'm tempted to envy. To hear a, a brilliant sermon and think, why can I preach like that? Or pastors who not only write sermons, they write books. A fruitful, growing ministry. That temptation has been and continues to be very real for me. What are some things that we can envy in others? The list is honestly limitless. Possessions, the experiences of others, their talents or gifts, their personality, perhaps their educational achievement, their, their success in work or in research, professional advancement, life situation, perhaps you desire to be married or desire to be single or you desire children. Their, their number of friendships, their ease, it seems, of having friends. I wonder where you today are tempted to envy. And I wonder if you see how accurate it is that so often it is we envy those who are very much close to us. For probably most of us, just envying some stranger who's a celebrity is not as likely as if you are scanning social media. You see that friend or that acquaintance who seems to have what you so desire, but don't. Friend, envy can destroy us from within and destroy our relationship with others. For we're envying these other people. So it's hard to maintain a friendship with someone that we envy. Author Gavin Ortland has written a helpful book on humility. I commend to you. He writes this. Just as pride is the opposite of humility, envy can be thought of as the opposite of love. 
Love says, I'm happy when you're happy and I'm sad when you're sad. Envy says, I'm happy when you're sad and I'm sad when you're happy. Envy is one of the most miserable vices. Most other vices tend to produce some kind of pleasure, however momentary, but envy is nothing but unpleasant. Through and through, it is the constant thief of joy. The writer of Proverbs says it this way, Proverbs 14, 13, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. And of course, he's not speaking of our actual bones. But the envy rots us from within, our heart, our soul, our peace. In envy, you can have nearly everything, but if you don't have the one thing, it's just not enough. Saul was the king. I mean, it would seem that he has everything, except the one thing apparently he desired the most, which seems to be the admiration that David had and that he hadn't. And those who opposed Jesus during his earthly ministry They did so, partly, out of envy. Pilate, the regional leader at the time, he saw it. Matthew 27, 18, it says, He, Pilate, knew it was out of envy that they delivered him up. Friends, for we who are Christians in Christ, there's there's a better way available for us. Because in Christ, we do have a new identity. Not based on what we do, what we achieve, what we have. Also, his providence is for our good. So what we have and what we don't have, what we obtain, what we achieve, we have a chance to trust that his providential hand is for our good. We're going to see how this envy leads Saul down a horrifically dark path. And we may not go down the same path of plotting the murder of another, but still a grave danger to our souls and our relationships. So friends, let's repent of envy. Let's be wise enough to be on guard against this looming danger for every single one of us. Let's pray for progress, that we'd be satisfied in what Christ has provided us, to believe his providential hand is for our good. There is a way forward of growth and maturity for us. Now, how significant was this envy? We see it's a a key turning point. Look at verse 9. It says, and Saul eyed David from that day on. So from that day forward, this envy fueled this, these irrational actions of Saul. We see verse 10 and 11, that David had a role in Saul's court. We learned about back in chapter 16, there was this harmful spirit that would impact Saul. So he brought David in who plays the liar, and as he played, it would help with the spirit. And we see in the text that while David is playing, Saul, who's apparently on his throne and has his spear nearby, I'm not sure why kings do that, but he throws his spear at David twice, but misses him. We think you have a difficult boss. (laughs) They haven't thrown a spear at you yet. And here we see another contrast between David and Saul. David had killed the tall man Goliath. One thing that Goliath has was this great spear. But David had triumphed with only a sling and a stone. Here's Saul, another tall man with a great spear, throwing his spear at David. While David is unarmed, 
or is busy doing something else. And he misses him both times. Saul, sadly, is more like the Philistine Goliath than he is like David, the Lord's anointed. We would think in light of this that David would now be fearful of Saul. That would be a rational thing. He's thrown the spear at you twice, be afraid, except we see just the opposite. Now Saul was afraid of David because he knew the Lord was with David and he knew the Lord was no longer with him. What did Saul do? He made David a commander of an army just so he wouldn't have to be around him and sent him out to do that. But here, again, verse 14, David has success because the Lord is with him. So Saul's fear of David grew. Then verse 16, but all Israel and Judah loved David for he went out and came in before them. So David just has more and more success. The crowd, the nation loves him. They admire him. You see, Verses 17 to 19, that then Saul has a new plan. He offers to give his daughter Merab to David as a wife, which in fact should have already happened because back last week, if you remember, David had asked, what happens to the person who fights this giant? And one of the things is he'd be given one of the king's daughters, but that hasn't happened yet. So Saul had been unfaithful to what he'd already committed. So he says, I'm going to give you a daughter, but his goal is that this daughter would be a trap for him. But in fact, what happens for some reason, he withholds it. When it comes time for her to be married, she's given to another man. But then we see verse 20. The one of Saul's other daughters, Michal, loved David. And we see verse 21, that Saul saw this as a way to set a trap for David and have the Philistines kill him. So he's like, I don't want to kill him myself, so I'm going to send him out. He'll try to fight the Philistines. The Philistines will kill him. They'll do the work for me. Now, David was aware that he was a poor man. Has a poor man from a poor family become a son-in-law to the king was the question that he asked. And so Saul offers a deal. You don't have to bring anything else except just go and kill 100 Philistines. Bring their foreskins to me, and that is all that it will take. And again, we see Saul's envy and fear drive him to make this gruesome requirement of David. But the goal is that while he's trying to get this 100, that David would be killed by the Philistines. Instead of being killed... David kills 200 Philistines. So Saul gave Michal to David as his wife. And again, we see verse 28. The Saul saw the Lord was with David. And he saw that his own daughter loved David as well. Look down at verse 29. Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Again, verse 30, he's more highly esteemed. So no matter what Saul tried to do, David was more and more successful more and more loved by all. But similarly, when Jesus came and walked the earth, the Jewish religious leaders were deeply and profoundly envious of him. But the crowds flocked to him, and they hated it. He had authority in his words that they didn't have, but they so wanted. Jesus had the love and admiration of the people that these insecure leaders so longed for. As Jesus taught, loved, and healed, the leaders would come. They would confront him by asking difficult questions, but he always had a brilliant response. When they would try to trap him, he would eventually always trap them in their own trap. No matter what they seemed to do, people were drawn to Jesus. We see that the Lord's anointed is envied and successful. And this is the one we want to love and trust and not oppose. That brings us to third and last. The Lord's anointed is pursued and delivered in chapter 19. 
Saul's envy and fear of David leads him to even more irrational choices as he takes the further step now of telling his son Jonathan and his servants that he wants them to kill David. Of course, Jonathan now is more committed to David than he is to his dad, Saul. And we've already seen that his servants, Saul's servants, love David as well. And so David is warned by Jonathan. And then Jonathan goes and speaks to his dad to try to persuade him otherwise. We see this in verse 4, and we see just the, the wise biblical thinking of Jonathan. Look down at verse 4. Jonathan says to Saul, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he's not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his own hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? I mean, it's a true and brilliant argument that he makes. So much so that Saul's persuaded. He makes a vow that he won't kill David. So Jonathan tells David, he brings David back. Again, there's war. David is sent out, and again, David delivers victory. Sadly, Saul's commitment to David not being killed doesn't last very long, so we see verse 10. Again, Saul throws a spear at David. And again, he misses. At least he's a bad shot. Saul's anger, though, wasn't just passing, so then he sends messengers to watch David's house to kill him the next morning. But David's wife, Michal, who remembers Saul's daughter, found out. So she warns David to flee in the night. And she puts something in the bed to make it look as if David's in bed. And Saul is so twisted, we see that he says, bring the bed. I don't care if he's sick. Bring him and the bed. Bring him to me so I can kill him. So David flees, verse 18, and he goes to Samuel, who we'd seen earlier in the book was the, the leader of Israel the prophet, the judge. But now he's, as he's gotten older, he's receded from the scene at this point in the book. But David goes, he tells Samuel everything. And they then went and lived in Naoth. But Saul found out. And so then he sent what are called messengers to go and take David, to go and kill David. And this leads to an interesting and honestly very strange scene at the end of the passage. For Samuel apparently has this kind of school of prophets. So he's training people to prophesy, to proclaim God's glory, to proclaim God's word. So Saul sends these messengers to kill David. They come to where the prophets are, and they start prophesying as well. They're supposed to kill David, but instead they begin to praise God. So the word reaches Saul. He sends a second group. The same thing happens. They're supposed to kill David. Instead, now they're praising God in prophecy. He sends a third group, and the same thing happens again. Finally, we see verse 22, Saul decides to go himself. And he's like, if you want something done, you got to do it yourself. So, so Saul packs up and he goes. But notice verse 23, when he arrives there, the Spirit of God also came upon Saul. And he, too, prophesied. But not only that, we're told that he stripped off his clothes and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among what are we to make of this? I mean, I'm guessing you didn't even know that was in the Bible. You're like, wait, is that really in the Bible? I mean, it's a crazy circumstance. But one, we see what God is doing in this is that the Spirit of God is intervening to preserve the Lord's anointed. These messengers who've come to kill, God just stops them. 
Instead, they're made to praise God. Three groups of them. And the same happens to Saul. He's come to kill. The Spirit stops him, and now Saul is praising God. But this also echoes something we saw earlier. In chapter 10, Saul was anointed as king. And shortly after his anointing, we see in chapter 10, verse 9, that Saul encountered a group of prophets. And the Spirit of God, we're told, came upon Saul, giving him a new heart. And Saul also prophesied, and it was said then as well, is Saul also among the prophets? Exact same quote. So at least two similar episodes that act like bookends, we could say, of Saul's kingship. At the beginning, as a king, Saul also among the prophets. And now at the end, it's not over for Saul, but it's quickly headed that way. This is functionally the end of any good from his kingship. It also serves as a bookend to something we've seen in our passage. Because you remember at the beginning of our passage, we saw another disrobing, didn't we? For Jonathan had disrobed, just as Saul does at the end of the text. The one on the throne, Saul disrobes, as well as the heir to the throne, Jonathan as well. Now, Jonathan chooses to willfully, gladly take off his royal robes, give up his position to David, because he loves the Lord's anointed. While Saul disrobes in this publicly humiliating way for the king of the land. Two very different responses to David, the Lord's anointed. One, Jonathan loves the Lord's anointed. The other, Saul, hates the Lord's anointed. And when Jesus, the anointed one, came, he humbled himself to walk the earth. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And there on the cross, Jesus also was disrobed, humiliated. There was no more shameful death in the history of the world than the Roman cross. That's what Jesus does. He, the true king, goes to the cross, that there on the cross, he would pay for our rebellion and our sin. He, the, the truly innocent one, was put to death without cause. He came to lay down his life that we could be made friends. He died and was raised to purchase salvation that to any and all could receive it by faith. Different if you're not a Christian, that's good news for you. This is a king unlike any other. A king who comes to serve rebels, who dies for enemies, to bring them into God's own family. For if this is new to you, we'd love for you to explore more. For those of you who are Christians, that's our king. That's the kingdom we live in, Jesus. Humiliate himself for you out of his great love and sacrifice, laid down his life for you. So today and every day, we, we all face the question, how will we respond to Jesus, the Lord's anointed? Will we set aside our kingdom and trust and embrace his kingdom? Will we cling to our own? We also need to see how the Lord's anointed sometimes divides families. We see this in the response to David. Saul ends up against Jonathan because Jonathan loves David and Saul hates him. 
Saul even turned against his daughter, Michal, because she loves David. So it was when Jesus came, family turned against him. And he told us that often, not always, but we shouldn't be surprised if at times families are divided, that some embrace the kingdom of Jesus and some don't. Some of you face this now. Painful family situations. Friendships wounded because you're now following Jesus. Friend, don't be shocked by that. Don't be despairing. Jesus told us it would happen. But also be encouraged. Jesus didn't say, you'll be separated now, go it alone. But he brings you into a family of the local church. This becomes the family for all of us. It even supersedes the best of earthly families. And how much more so? when there's division. Also, as we watch the life of David, we should see that though he's the Lord's anointed and he has success after success after success, he's not having a trouble-free life. He's winning, people love him, but he's on his run for his life. At every turn, someone's trying to kill him. Friends, as we follow Jesus in this life, he's promised to be with us by the Spirit. He's with us and in us in a wonderful gift that is ours through Christ. And God will in so many ways prosper us in this world, but following Jesus is not a guarantee of a trouble-free life. It is not a guarantee of a life without suffering or without difficulty, without opposition, even without hatred. It's not the promise of Jesus. But the promise of Jesus is he's with us in and through all of those things that he will sustain us in and through those. So friend, take hope. It's very possible to face great difficulty, not because you're outside of God's will, but because you're in God's will. David was doing exactly what he should be doing, still facing great opposition. Following Jesus is not the promise of a trouble-free life. So friends, let's trust and love the Lord's anointed king, the king who came for us, Instead of opposing him, let's love him, trust him today.